This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, we are seeing progress and as well as some concerns when it comes to COVID-19 and the vaccine rollout. The nation's top infectious disease doctor, heading up the president's COVID team, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he made some comments at the National Press Club yesterday talking about the progress, yes, but still far from being over COVID-19. It's really a critical time right now because we could just as easily swing up into a surge. That would be a setback for public health. But that would be a psychological setback, too. Again, that was Anthony Fauci, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. So, Tim, a lot going on. We've got New York City saying beaches will open in May, U.K. rolling out Moderna. But we've got global cases still above 132,689 million shots given worldwide. At the same time, we're seeing a lot of news when it comes to vaccines. The United Kingdom rolling out the Moderna Mm -hmm. vaccine, giving those first shots today. And also news from the European Union about AstraZeneca. So let's get into it with Dr. Sandro Galea. He's dean and professor at Boston University School of Public Health, uh, author of the upcoming book. It'll be out in the fall, The Contagion Next Time. He joins us again on the phone from Boston. The Contagion Next Time. Dr. Galea, that terrifies me. Nice to, though, have you back here. Thank you, Carol. Good to talk to you. So how do you see kind of where we are? I do feel like uh, Dr. Fauci, we also heard from the president yesterday talking about progress, you know, seeing over the weekend a day where we, you know, rolled out 4 million vaccinations in the United States. And yet there's always those words of caution. Yeah, I think we've made remarkable progress. 4 million vaccines a day is extraordinary. We've had 150 million shots since uh, President Biden has taken office. That's about 70 days. And uh, in many respects, we're sort of on the brink of an amazing sort of transition, amazing breakthrough. We'll have enough people who are immunized where it will be difficult for the virus to spread. At the same time, there remains the concern about the variants and also the concern that as, as restrictions ease in parts of the country, particularly Michigan, you are seeing more cases spreading. Now, the cases that are spreading, there's a question about demographically, they're affecting more young people who have less severe um, disease, as you know, and as we've discussed on the show. So, so it's a balance of multiple forces, more vaccines, fewer people susceptible at the same time, easing of restrictions, more young people getting cases. And, and I think the question on everybody's minds, which you heard in Dr. Fauci's comments, is which of these will we be able to push forward first? Will we be able to get enough people vaccinated so that we are much less susceptible, so that we can really see a dampening in the course of COVID? Or will we have other flare-ups, other clusters that become outbreaks? What does the pandemic being gone will look like when this turns endemic, right? We do have a flu season yeah. every single year where, where thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of people do die, but we don't call it a pandemic. That's true. It's, uh, in, in many respects, uh, it, it, becomes, uh, it becomes endemic when we, when we establish a, a baseline prevalence that, that we grow comfortable with. And of course, what that looks like remains to be seen. But I think most commentators have settled on that, um, if we can get the surges under control, that this will be something that probably will be with us, where we will have some number of cases every year, potentially requiring some boosters responsive to variants annually. But it will be a disease that we live with the same way we live with the flu. 
So, you know, tell us what's going on uh, at your university, because I think the last time we talked in February, you were just returning to in-person classes. Tell us kind of where you are and how things are going. Yeah, so we so we, we uh, continue to offer teaching in a combination of in-person and hybrid. Most of our students are uh, online, but about 10 to 20 percent at any one time are in person. And our faculty and staff come in as needed, depending on the teaching needs and the needs of the scholarship. We have announced, as have many other of our peer universities, that our expectation is that we will be fully back to in-person teaching in the fall, starting in September, that we, we expect more or less a uh, a return to a sort of business as it was before the pandemic in the fall. That will undoubtedly be accompanied with some testing, um, whether or not there will be masking, I think that mm. remains to be seen. But but the expectation of, at least at our school, our university and our peers is that the fall, assuming that other things do not intervene, we will be back to teaching in person. Is there going to be a requirement for students to be vaccinated? Yeah, so we have not uh, put the requirement in place yet at our university, but other universities have. Other universities have announced that they will, Northeastern has, uh, Brown University has, uh, Rutgers has, that their students, there will be a requirement. And I think it's an active, it's an active conversation in all the universities right now. Do you think that it should, it should be a requirement from a medical perspective? I think what matters is that we get as many people vaccinated as possible. Whether, whether getting 90 to 95%, say, of a community vaccinated requires to make vaccination a requirement or whether it can be achieved voluntarily. I think that depends very much on the particular university community. Hey, one thing I want to ask you, I'm going to actually talk with uh, Arnold Donald, the CEO of Carnival, and the CDC last night basically came out and said they think that uh, we could see some U.S. cruise ships back in uh, order by midsummer. What do you think about the cruise industry and what about that maybe reopening and, and what needs to be done? Well, I sort of, I think, I think, I believe it was Viking, right? That uh, they they said they will be reopening cruises, mm-hmm. but only for people who are vaccinated. Correct. And I think, I think when. But the CDC that, isn't requiring that in the U.S. so far. No, not so far. No, I mean, I think you know, what you're doing from a business, from from the enterprise perspective, let's say from the Viking perspective, you are saying that you are only going to have people, obviously in close quarters, but people who are very low risk for transmission, who have been tested. Um, so you know they don't have COVID, and essentially you create a close community where there's no COVID in, so there's no COVID inside, so, so COVID is not going to spread, and people who are at low risk. You know, the key about the vaccines is we know that uh, people who are vaccinated can still get COVID and can still transmit COVID, probably. But the key is that the cases of COVID among people who are vaccinated that have been documented are much milder than they were before COVID. So, so really, this is part of Tim's question of us learning to live with COVID. Like, what does it mean if there are still cases of COVID, but they're milder? And what's our tolerance for that? And I think all of that's being sorted out right now. Yeah, milder and that they don't necessarily do the same damage that they would have done to us if we weren't vaccinated because Correct. we don't get as sick as the studies have shown. Hey, what about variants? Where do variants come into this conversation? What's the latest that you're seeing with how they're being able to spread more rapidly and and also possibly make the vaccines less less effective? Yeah, the the, the answer is yes to both. I think the the, uh, best data are that uh, the variants make uh, make transmission more efficient and also have the vaccines being less effective. Having said that, having said that, the, uh, the leading vaccines out there right now, the best evidence suggests that they remain maybe 50%, maybe 60% effective against some of the variants. Um, the, the transmission, so the R0, jumps up with the variants. So essentially they make the virus 
more dangerous. It makes it more dangerous for us and, and, and makes our line of defense vaccine less effective. But we do retain effectiveness of vaccine, which then brings us back to our best approach right now is to vaccinate as many people as possible to leave the virus as little space as possible to move around. Your book coming out in the fall, The Contagion the Next Time, <laughs> Contagion Next Time. Uh, what should we as global citizens be preparing for? Well, the, the, the central thesis of the book is that um, we undoubtedly will be spending a lot of time focusing on biosurveillance and vaccines and all that, and all that's important, and we should do all that. But a lot of what's been going on in the past year is about our social and economic structures that left us exposed to this vaccine. It's about underlying health inequities that created health haves and health have-nots that the vaccine exploited, that when the, I apologize, that the, the epidemic exploited, that unless we tend to those underlying issues, the next contagion will end up with the same devastation socially and economically that we saw happening this time. So it really, Carol, builds on a lot of conversations you and I have had over the past year and a half um, since the pandemic has been around that that we we cannot buy our way out of the consequences of a pandemic simply by dealing with vaccines and biosurveillance, that we actually need to tend to the underlying issues that that the large proportion of the population has underlying comorbidities that makes them vulnerable to illness when when the pandemic hit. That a large proportion of the population has no choice but to actually go to work physically in person, which mm-hmm. then means that we have a hard time controlling transmission when a pandemic hit. So, so the thesis of the book really is that we need to tend to these things. So very briefly, I mean, do you see anything policy-wise coming out of Washington that, that does help deal with these things? We just heard from the president about his $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan. Is there I anything think, in there that the would help? From I do, I do. I actually think the signals from Washington have been have been very promising. Of course, uh, it, often the proof of the pudding is in the eating and depends on how these things are implemented. But uh, I think what uh, the president is proposing, the infrastructure plan, paying attention particularly to investing in narrowing health gaps, that, that these are steps that we should be taking. Frankly, we should have taken as a country 30, 40 years ago. So I'm, heart, I'm heartened by these signals coming out of Washington. Right. I mean, water, you know, equality, jobs. I mean, exactly. Um, so nice to catch up with you, Sandro. Stay safe. Dr. Sandro Galea, he's Dean and Professor at Boston University School of Public Health. He's author of the upcoming book. It'll be out in the fall, The Contagion Next Time, joining us once again on the phone from Boston. I've said it before, but I love talking Uh, or why I love talking to him is we get the medical perspective, we get the academic perspective of what's going on in education because it has been so impacted because of the pandemic. So, Tim, great to check in with him. Yeah, it always is. And um, Boston University, still not not decided with what they're going to be doing when it comes to requiring vaccinations. Yeah, exactly. They expect to be back in the fall with some testing. So in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, and it turns out it's also a most read story on the Bloomberg today, it's about millions tumbling out of the global middle class in a historic setback. Not a good thing, Tim. No, I got to turn my mic on there. Not a good thing at all. And, you know, we <laughs> no. were lucky enough to speak to Sean Donnan, senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News, a little earlier mm-hmm. in the day on Quick Take to talk all about what has changed over the last year because of the pandemic. So Sean, come on in here. You're joining us on the phone from Maryland. Talk to us a little bit about what happened in 2020 during the pandemic with regard to the middle class and and why it was such a big deal that so many people fell out of the middle class. Well, thanks for having me again. Uh, It's, uh, Look, what we've seen in the past year with the pandemic is really the upending of all sorts of economic truths, right? And, and the end and the challenging of big ideas. And this is one that's kind of gone by unnoticed. 
for 30, 40 years, businesses around the world have been betting on this big, growing, new middle class and emerging economies, and it's been ever-growing. There's been this escalator to the middle class that's just kept churning out new middle class uh, people in places like India and Indonesia and the Philippines and obviously China as well. Well, what we saw with the pandemic and the economic crisis that came with it was for the first time in decades, these economies, a lot of these economies were contracting. And when they contracted, what also contracted? The number of people in that middle class. And the big question that we've got now is, is this just a blip? Is this a one-time thing? Or as these economies, and we've heard this from the IMF this week, recover more slowly than advanced economies like the U.S., is it going to be harder to get those people back into the middle class? And is that going to be a bigger drag on growth? And is that going to really change or force a change in thinking by a lot of business executives, CEOs around the world who've been betting in all of these consumers and in new and exciting places. Yeah, it's such a great perspective. Jill Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor on the Access Line in Brooklyn. Uh, I can just see, Joel, when Sean was talking to you about this idea, like, oh, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, and, you know, I think the thing that really distinguishes it, it, it was the the ability of the newsroom to to make this a truly international story. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, I think I think we've talked about um, the China middle class um, it, for basically almost every every story about um, Chinese consumers for, for a decade plus now. Um, but, you know, it's much bigger than that. Um, the, the global middle class is not the American middle class, right? Um, and, and these are people who have actually risen risen out of poverty around the world. Um, and I think the scary part, as, as this package shows, is, is you know, the grip, the, the, the grip of gravity, I guess, really. And w- when, um, when we have this much wealth um, spread across the world and this many people that are being sucked back towards poverty, it's going to become uh, another economic challenge for not just like the next year or two, but potentially for, for you know, years to come. Um, it makes stories like vaccines all the more relevant because the the developing world remains w- well behind the developed on that front. Um, so, so all of those were really interesting to me. And and Shana, you know, being a guiding hand in all of this, you know, take us take us through th- some of the countries and and what jumped out to you and what what you learned. Yeah. So look, I mean, one of the really important things with this story, and I think with any economic story, is really the, the hit at at who's affected. And so we went out and uh, we spent time talking to reporters in our bureaus, and, and we found we really ended up focusing on four countries. And, and in India, we talked to a guy called Ravi Sharma, and Ravi is a really interesting guy, father of two beautiful daughters. He's been married. And last year, he was hoping for his wedding anniversary to give his wife their first car. And the car in particular that he'd been saving up for for years is a $6,000 car. It's called the Maruti Alto. And it's really the entry-level car for uh, the American middle class. I'm trying to think of an, an American co- equivalent, probably the Toyota Corolla or uh, or, or Ford Fusion. Uh, the, um, uh, then we, we went out over to Thailand, and Thailand's an amazing story in that it's really about us and how we're not traveling internationally, and we're not going to these places that depend on tourists. And in Thailand this year, they expect to have 3 million uh, uh, visitors. In 2019, before the pandemic, they had 39 million visitors. And we talked to there this woman, Yada, who's a, a street hawker there, sells... Uh, snacks and, and fruit juice to, to tourists and those tourists that she relies on 
and she used to have a house and a mortgage and a, and a car with a car payment, um, th- that income is just gone, and she's defaulted on both of those and moved into a, a, a rental house. And a very kind of something that I think a lot of people in the American middle class can can uh, can uh, feel for. Uh, then we went to um, South Africa. In South Africa, a young woman who has uh, you know moved into her first apartment and uh, lost her job last year with a big retailer that uh, was getting close to bankruptcy. She moved back to the family home. But the important thing here is she's moved from this kind of steady job in the formal economy with an apartment in the formal economy to like this portfolio of side hustles. And one of the biggest ones is she's built a room out back of the family home that she can rent out for $100 a month. And then finally, we, we go to Brazil and to this woman, Frenzenette, uh, and Francinette is a secretary. Uh, she has a, a comfortable middle class existence like a lot of Brazilians. She loves beef. But you know what? The price of food has changed so much in the past year. Uh, and they've got a real problem with, with food price inflation there uh, in Brazil that she's now uh, they've turned meatless Mondays into meatless Tuesdays. And they're also when she goes to the butcher, she's looking at things like kidney and liver, the kind of thing that. Uh, you know, we think of as past generations who were trying to save a penny uh, would eat. But we've seen, uh, and that is borne out in the in the data in Brazil, where beef sales have tanked, and we've seen more people buy chicken, and in particular eggs, uh, are selling at a record uh, clip in Brazil. So it's a fundamental reshaping of people's lives that we're seeing out there in emerging economies in ways that are uh, that should really resonate with a lot of people in the American middle class and ways that are going to drag on for a lot longer. The other way to think about all of this, if you back up, is if we think about the last crisis in 2008-2009, that hit the American middle class pretty hard, and it was a decade of slow recovery after that that led to uh, also it had all sorts of political repercussions. The emerging economies did pretty well around that crisis. This time around, the American middle class is probably going to come out of this okay. In emerging economies, it's going to be a very different story. And there's the, this word um, bifurcating that um, we talk about in terms of what the what that means for the for the global economy, Sean. And you know, so much of the story is backward facing, and basically, you know, that little tour of the world that Sean just gave us. We we have great charts and data points for for all of those um, uh, things in the, in the story. And, and Sean, I, I'm just curious, when you think about you know, what's to come here, like what are the, what are the moments and data points that you'll be sort of on the lookout as a reporter for in the, in the months slash years to come that will, will help us understand just how devastating this past year has been? Sean, you gotta be quick so, though, only got 30 I'll seconds. Be, I'll, be really, I'll, be, I'll be really quick here. And it's the same one that we're all looking at here in the United States. And that's how quickly we get back to where we were and the path that we were on beforehand. In a place like India, it's gonna end this year with an economy that's 5% or so smaller. In the US, it's gonna be 1.6% smaller. A place like Indonesia, it's gonna be closer to like 10% smaller this year. That's the gap that you need to close. And that's yeah. uh, what comes ahead and why it's so important. It's some of what we've talked about. Tim, I was thinking about our conversations with Joseph Stieglitz, Nobel laureate, uh, talking about yeah. the developed having to take care of the developing nations and really be aware. Hey, guys, thank you so much. Uh, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, Bloomberg News Senior Trade and Globalization reporter Sean Don- Donham. That story, by the way, will be in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. 
on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so just checking here because this was the most. Oh, it still story. is. I just looked. <laughs> oh, it I is. I just looked, Carol. In the last eight hours, the most read story. This is what folks are reading about, and listen, no doubt about it. It's about how Jamie Dimon said he's optimistic the pandemic will end with a U.S. economic rebound that could last at least two years. Yeah, people want to read what Jamie Dimon has to totally. say, and this is his longest letter ever—66 pages. Shanali Bosick is a Wall Street reporter joining us right here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Shanali, great to have you back on the show. Hey, why do you think everybody wants to know what Jamie Dimon is thinking? It's so funny you ask this because twice today somebody's asked me, people have asked me, readers have asked me to do another kind of take of this or a podcast because they want to know they what to know more. without reading 66 pages. <laughs> uh, it's really a reset to the year, right? Jamie Dimon's tone, positive, negative. What does he think about the economy? Is he happy with the state of America? People care. And honestly, as the biggest bank in the country and, you know, the most profitable, right? It's uh, really mm-hmm. a matter of, you know, what he says goes, right? Well, it's also, don't you think, Shanali, too, and Tim, I think you think that probably agree that, you know, this whole idea that this is someone who has seen crisis before uh, and understands, you know, the impact on the economy, the impact on business, the impact on the financial markets. He's seen it before. He's had a front row seat. He's been at the table during the financial crisis and other crises uh, in his career. And so he is someone who can really kind of look at this and maybe put it in perspective and can see, you know, how bad it was and how quickly it's bounced back. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he took a tone that was really realistic. And while he said that the markets can be very buoyant till 2023, Mm. very specific timeline he gave there, Mm -hmm. he also really gave a huge nod to how unequal all of this, um, you know, how unequal the the economy really is right now and the country is and the need for a social social safety net, higher minimum wages across the country, um, among other things basic needs, right? You know, immigration reform, health care, and, and things that are very hotly contested, not just among corporate America, but in Washington. You know, we talked about this a little bit on Quick Take earlier today, Shanali, but the tone of his letter, and, and you pointed out something that that's, has stuck with me, the difference in tone from this letter versus what we heard from Warren Buffett just a few weeks ago. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the reason I think this is so interesting. So Warren Buffett, when he came out of this letter this year and didn't really talk about COVID and, and the economy at large, he was criticized as tone deaf. And then you have Jamie Dimon, who weighs in in a big way about the tone of the American economy and, 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 and the American citizen, saying that they've lost trust in our institutions, in our businesses, in our in our governments, in our schools, and in our media. And, you know, it shows to tell you that, you know, what place does a CEO have in the country? People do want him to speak up, right? People are listening to him, not just on the markets, but people do want him to weigh in on social matters because at the end of the day, JP Morgan's also a big employer, right? They are providing a lot of capitals to communities that need that money to, to really make it through the worst of this crisis. Listen, you know, think about all the reporting that's going on right now, especially we're watching the CEOs down in Atlanta, right, when it comes to Georgia and voting rights and what people expect of CEOs and corporate leaders who are so careful about what they talk about, you know, politically, Shanali. But I do think there is, as you said, employees increasingly want their leaders to do it. They're, you know, younger employees are shopping their companies based on what those companies stand for. Speaking of younger employees, that's what 
else he was afraid of the new fintechs coming (laughs) you know talent wise we knew that this was a competitive threat for a while but for him to say as the biggest bank in the country serving more than half of u.s households uh, to say what a big threat fintech was and technology right he cited kind of the presence of google and apple and amazon um you know others have also been concerned about big tech in other ways as well. Well, so what does that mean for the bank? Does that mean they go out and they potentially acquire a fintech company? It's a possibility because remember, JP Morgan can't at its size go out and buy a bank, right? And plus, it doesn't even need to. Like, think about how many people it serves in deposits. I mean, a lot of these fintech companies don't actually consider themselves banks either. Yeah. Re- for regulatory purposes oh. and for just the way that they handle money. Yeah. A lot of this is payments. It's getting it's yeah. getting money from one side to the other, right? Um, among other, Custody, among other things, right? So we'll see how J.P. Morgan chooses to grow, right? They also have a big asset manager at the end of the day. And that's another place we could imagine them doing some deals. Yeah, exactly. Are they banks? Are they really a bank, though? I'm just saying, is it time for us to, like, kind of relook at all of this? How would you, what would you call it? I don't know. Financial it, conglomerate? Thank you. Thank you. Q. Sandy Weil, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. and, and, and Mentor. Exactly. Exactly. This is what, you know, I just find it interesting, especially when we're talking about risk and, you know, the public perception concerns about, you know, financial firms still not trusting them. But that's because banks are not banks. And guess what? That draws the question. You know, Sandy Weil was really the glue to Citigroup in its past mm-hmm. when it was really that financial supermarket. Yeah. Jamie Dimon is the glue to J.P. Morgan. And, you know, what happens, J.P. Morgan, without Jamie Dimon, uh, when they start to talk about succession? Which they're not doing, of course. But <laughs> and he does, and he has said he's not going anywhere yet, right? Exactly. He he makes yeah. a joke every, oh, know. you know, or he keeps saying five more years every year. So, <laughs> hey, what hey, Shanali, um, what did he say about returning to work? We we heard comments yeah. from him a few weeks ago in an interview that he did with Bloomberg TV about how he does see the value in doing stuff in person. But what did he say in the letter about returning to work? Yeah, he said that most people will be <laughs> returning yeah, to work. Wow. At, you know, most. we heard from three, um, you know, finance titans today actually across different types of finance firms. We heard from Larry Fink, who wants mm-hmm. to get people to back to work. We heard from Jamie Dimon, who wants to get back to work. I talked to a private equity executive at Blackstone also, who says, you know, you can't really be doing your best work over Zoom. So uh, people want to get back to work. That's uh, the bottom line. I'm going to contest it. I'm going to attest to that rather. It's just, I'm not going to contest. I'm going to attest <laughs> to that because I'm back at home. I got so used to it, like in the early days and I had a nice little routine. I cannot wait to get back to the office. Hey, yeah, we're we excited you for you to get right back now. here, Carol. Huh? We're excited for you to get back here, Carol. <laughs> I have all these lights up. It just, oh my God, it's a nightmare. Shanali, this is great stuff. Great reporting. And you were so wonderful in breaking down his so-called quote-unquote letter because it's more like a mini novel, is it not? Just quickly. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to say, all 66 pages. And that's not even his deputy's work. <sighs> love it, love it. Thank you so much. Shanali Bosick, she's Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News, back in our interactive broker studio with Tim. Read the story. It's on the terminal because uh, everybody else is. Just saying. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
All right, just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Let's get to it with Leo Kelly, founder, CEO, and co-CIO at Verdance Capital Advisors, overseeing $3 billion in client assets. He's back with us on the phone from Hunt Valley, Maryland. Hey, Leo, good to have you here with us. Um, how are you doing? Oh, doing well. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. We're, we're slowly uh, seem to be finding our way out of uh, the crazy year that was 2020, and uh, that's good news. Does it feel that way? Tell me why you say that. Um, it does feel that way. I think um, as we you know as, as we look around anecdotally at activity, I, I know airport traffic is up tremendously. We're starting to get back to levels we were in the past. It's it's true of activity on the roads and so forth. And of course, just look at the markets. Look at mm. um, you know look at what what's happening not only in the markets but in the economy with uh, you know with the delays you're seeing in products because pent-up demand combined with current demand combined with lack of inventories is starting to explode and prices are starting to rise. So yes, it does feel like we're coming out of this. So expectations, if you look at the equity markets, are certainly high as to where we are in the recovery. We are going to start hearing from companies soon, not just about their first fiscal quarters, but also how they're thinking for the rest of the year. What's the chance that, that companies don't deliver on these high expectations or the concern? Well, I, you know, I do think when we, you know, when we look at um, the market, I, I think it's going to be hard for companies to not deliver here. Hmm. Uh, I think there's some, there, there's some chances like uh, demand was good, but supply was an issue, right? Because the demand came back uh, so abruptly, and there may be very specific circumstances. I, I, I do think that valuation in certain areas is an issue, and uh, you can um, you can achieve uh, a really good growth in a business and see your stock get hit pretty hard because it doesn't match what the what the market is expecting. You're executing on all cylinders, but the market starts to expect beyond what you're capable of. Um, now, that said, there's so much money floating in this system. I mean, between what the Fed has injected, multiple stimulus plans, now we're talking about another $2 trillion. It's astonishing how we use the word trillion with such ease these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the amount of money in the system is astonishing. I mean, money supply went up over 25% last year. Um, and that, I think, there's just no way to stop that momentum in the economy with that much money floating around the system. And that makes you nervous? It does make me nervous in the long run. In the short run, Carol, the, 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 that amount of money put in, um, is, it, it has to have a positive effect, especially mm-hmm. when that money translates to money supply increases. In 08-09, the money went into the banks and the banks held on to it. So it never really increased money supply. Combine that with the fact that consumers are in far better shape than they were the last time because they, they still got paid through the crisis via unemployment benefits and PPP. They didn't have any, money, any place to spend the money. You can only do so much online. And so personal savings rates exploded during the COVID. And then you, then you add the fact that debt is down from the last debt crisis Housing prices are up, 401ks are up. So the consumer's in better shape. Their net worth is better. They've, they've had personal savings increases, and they've got all this pent-up demand and this pent-up um, a- activity that they want to start to uh, 
right. they want to start to enjoy. So that's, right. I, yeah, I do think it speaks well short run. Long term, it's an issue. Okay, so I'm curious what your short term is, and I say that because Tim and I earlier talked about the most read story on the Bloomberg today, which has Jamie Dimon, of course, J- of J.P. Morgan, saying mm-hmm. this boom could easily run into t- 2023. So he's talking about the economic boom and ultimately the market boom. Is that your short term range, or are you talking shorter than that? Because you guys have been building up cash or holding on to cash. Yeah, we, we you know we we've started to build a little bit more cash. Um, I do again. I think we have to look at there. There is a separation between uh, equity pricing and economic activity, and, and equities can get ahead of themselves. And in fact, if you look at the growth markets, they have not performed well this year. And we have been overweight international in value and small value because that performs well coming out of a recession. And V-shaped bounce has always been our our prime uh, our, our prime model now. I do think this thing has legs. I do think we'll see volatility because interest rates have to go higher. Inflation is here. Pricing is going to start and continue to rise. So in an intermediate from the intermediate term, which is a you know three years out or so or more, you, you do have some challenges. And in terms of the long term, I, I say this all the time. We are addicted to painkillers. Every time there's financial stress, we just we just pour money into at the problem. And that's okay now where we currently stand but i liken it to an aircraft carrier we're heading for the iceberg we can see it out in the distance and rather than start the turn we're speeding up sooner or later we have to we have to pay the piper and um so for now short-term intermediate i think we're fine uh but this is something that sooner or later we have to reverse the trend and start the turn well, that's an unfortunate note to end it on. <laughs> the image of the uh, the image of the ship heading toward the iceberg. Unfortunately, we are out of time, Leo. But thank you so much for joining us today, Leo Kelly, founder, chief executive officer, and co chief investment officer at Verdant's Capital Advisors, joining us on the front from Hunt Valley, Maryland. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.